Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, that your, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Thank you, Lord. Well, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, also known as PETA, buried a headstone back in 2008 in the graveyard where the late um, Colonel Sanders, uh, the founder of KFC, where he's buried, they buried a headstone. I'm going to ask my brother Tim in the back if he could to hold up that image when you get a chance. Well, the headstone says this, and you'll see uh, how it's written. I don't expect you to retain all of this, so just kind of entertain me here for a minute. Kind friend of chickens, it says. Today we honor your memory. Our love for you continues. Rest in peace. Those suffering and unable to move remember you, each one striving for salvation. Brother, in us as in you remain dreams for the souls of the voiceless. Well, you can see that it's written in an acrostic there. And it says, uh, if you take the first letter of each line, you have an acrostic which spells out KFC tortures birds. Um, and this is just not, just a few, uh, maybe a stone's throw away from where Colonel Sanders is buried. Um, so whether or not you agree with the statement, um, I, most, I probably wouldn't. Um, since we have chickens up there, and I have no problem putting them on my dinner table. Um, probably wouldn't do the butchering myself, but nonetheless I will... Um, eat the chickens. Um, but this is, has become, if you go online and, and, and Google and look around, this has become a quasi-famous example of an acrostic, of what an acrostic is. Maybe you've heard of an acrostic. Uh, the online dictionary defines an acrostic as a poem, a word puzzle, or other composition in which certain letters in each line form a word or words. So you gather and see how the first letter there and makes a, another statement. So that's an acrostic. Well, why do I go into this random detail? Well, because the Bible actually contains acrostics as well. And our passage today is one of nine acrostics in the Bible. In actual, in, excuse me, in the Psalter, actually. And this is uh, the only other book uh, that's in the poetic literature of the Bible that has an acrostic is Lamentations. So there is uh, some, some content there in this form. But there's nine of the psalms that have acrostic form. And actually, the one we're looking at today follows uh, the Hebrew alphabet. So if you were to, say, try and do this in English, the way it would look would be, you know, the first letter of the first word 
would be an A. The first, la the first uh, letter of the second word, or the second line, or whatever, would be B, and so on. And in Hebrew, it, it follows the Hebrew alphabet, which you know, is, is very different from ours. Aleph, Bey, Gimel, Dalit, and so on. But scholars have noticed a couple of things about such psalms written in acrostic form. You know, you ask the question, why? What's the significance of this? And, and they gather, obviously, that there's precision, right? The guy didn't sit down and start pulling words out of the air, and lo and behold, there was an acrostic. Now, there's precision, there's, you know, there's intention behind this, there's a skill to which these things uh, are required to, to write a psalm in this way. Taking the time to pen something seems to imply at least a great deal of thought, right? And energy that went into this. It's not random. But one thing that scholars are not sure of is why. Why do we have these acrostics? Why, say, is Psalm 25 written this way in particular? We're, we're not real sure. But most scholars, I think, from at least what I gather uh, from reading, and it makes sense to me, have suggested that maybe this was an aid to memory. Maybe the Hebrews wanted a model or a way to remember important prayer sequences as they sought God. Maybe there's, you know, a need to remember, right? Some sort of logic or some sort of, you need, you need a prompt as you're praying. Maybe we need these sorts of tools as we pray to God, as we pursue God, right? Maybe some of y'all have heard of Acts. Have you heard of the prayer model Acts? A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Sometimes when maybe you're really stressed or you're in a tough moment, you don't know what to say, but you're desperate. Maybe you remember Acts. Okay, well, that's a model for me. I can pray. I can put, some, put something up there. I can, I can make this happen. Maybe you don't necessarily need words to pray. You, know, you can pray from your heart or just in your mind. But sometimes it's nice to have a structure. But if you look at this prayer we have before us today, and this is kind of what I want us to wrestle with as we read it, ask the question, what was, what was this person thinking when they penned this psalm? What was running through their mind? Why, may, why did they want to do it this way? What, what's the logic here? I think if you begin to see, you'll see a theme kind of rise to the top. And maybe it makes some sense of, of what's going on here. And that theme is trust. Verses 1 and 2, right off the bat, if you look there in the, in the text. Use the language of trust. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Maybe the psalmist is wrestling with the idea of trusting God. Maybe he's expressing his trust to God, but trying to get to a deeper place of trust. Maybe he's in a stressful situation. Maybe he's going through something in his life, which we'll gather as we go on, that he is. And he's trying to remind himself of what it means to trust God, to encourage himself, to speak truth to himself, to trust the Lord. We're not going to look at the whole psalm, but just from the section that we, we have today, I think we can get a pretty good picture of what trusting God looks like. Maybe we hear that sort of language and we wonder, what in the world is that all about? What does it actually mean to trust God? Well, I want, I'm going to try and make four quick points for us. The first one is this. First and foremost, those who trust God know God's character. Second, those who trust God find security in Him. Thirdly, those who trust God look to God for guidance. Fourthly, those who trust God look to God for grace. Well, let's begin with the first one, knowing God's character. Those who trust God know His character. Or to use the language that we see here in the psalm, 
Those who trust God know his ways. They know his paths. Trust is built upon some kind of knowledge and experience, is it not? It's not random. You don't just jump out of the window and trust for no reason. That doesn't make any sense. It's based upon some kind of a of an experience or, or knowledge. If you look at the language of our passage, what you're going to see over and over throughout the psalm as you go through it, is that he reminds himself of who God is over and over and over again. God is protector in verses 2 and 3. God is savior in verse 5. God is merciful and loving in verse 6. God is good in verses 7 and 8. He's upright in verse 8. God is faithful in verse 10. And it continues, if you were to continue throughout the psalm, and see him reminding himself of who God is. Those who trust God understand this, right? And this is really what separates, I think, us from, from maybe folks who struggle to trust God or don't believe in God or maybe they've had a bad experience with God and they, they really have difficulty trusting um, God. Often what you will find when you get into conversations with folks, and this is a good exercise for all of us, get into conversations with someone and you begin to wrestle with the idea of God or what is it that you struggle with about religion or Christianity or the idea of God? What is it that you have a problem with? Or maybe what points of disagreement would we have, say, with, with them? Where would they differ from us? You're going to find often that they take one or two of these characteristics that we've mentioned to the extreme. You're going to find that Maybe they're overly consumed with the idea of God's justice, right? To the point where there's no way God could accept me. Or I'm not into that sort of thing. I don't want to go to church and get the hellfire and brimstone every Sunday morning. That's not for me. And it leads to a fear and a distance or the belief that God could never accept me. Right? Don't you find that sort of thing? I remember I played softball with a bunch of guys this past summer. And I got that question, interestingly, from two or three of them. Now, you're not one of those hellfire brimstone preachers, are you? I said, <laughs> said well, I, mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it. But uh, No, I mean, probably not in the way they conceive of it. No. Um, but they're consumed with this one aspect of God's character, right? That, that, and that dominates everything else. Or many, maybe, are even overly consumed with the idea of God's love and acceptance to the point of believing, in essence, that God is a big pushover and that how you live your life is completely irrelevant and makes no difference whatsoever. Or for some, at least the people to believe that the church has made up all that garbage about how to live your life. It's a control mechanism. God's love. God doesn't care about how I live. That's the church. That's the church people that do that stuff. But that again is another error, right? They're taking this love thing to the extreme. Today we're beginning to see many becoming so consumed with the idea of God's artistry or creative side or with God's mandate to have dominion that many end up basically believing in that God is the earth in creation worship. God has become one with the world, what we know as pantheism. This is a form of taking one characteristic of God and taking it to the absolute extreme, neglecting the others. The point I'm making here is that if you take any of God's attributes and run with them without balancing them out with, with the others, you're going to end up in some really strange places. Trusting God, I think as we'll see as we go through this, stems from a healthy balance of all of God's attributes and characteristics, a well-balanced understanding of who, who God is, taking all of the corners, if you will, of God's character and appreciating them all. 
So are you struggling, say, to give something to God? Are you struggling with trusting God this morning in some way? Whatever it may be, whatever the issue is you're wrestling with. Remind yourself, as the psalmist does today, of who God is, who he declares himself to be. And I think that's what this psalmist is doing here. Maybe he's in a place of despair and struggle and he says, I trust in the Lord for he is this, for he is good, for he is just, for he is upright, he is holy. He'll guide me in his way and he'll lead me in the right path. And this acrostic helps him remember these key points that he wants to remember as he seeks to trust God. For trusting God also means being secure in God. Life is filled with problems, is it not? I mean, we just heard folks praying, pouring out their hearts to God, even with tears. Life is hard at times. We all have struggles and things we wrestle with. Even in the best moments, the times, you know, we feel most secure, there's always some problem lurking in the backdrop, is there not? Some potential hazard down the road. There's always something to be a little concerned about. The psalmist recognizes this. Look at verse 2. He says this, there's relationship problems. He's not, maybe going, things aren't going over well with everyone in his life. And he has some insecurity about some connection in his life, some individual. Seems like maybe uh, he's nervous about, he speaks of an enemy, someone who's out to get him. There are people in our lives, are there not, that we'll never feel quite secure or comfortable around completely. Maybe those we don't see eye to eye with are folks who have hurt us in the past in some way. There's always a temptation that, you know, they might do that again to me. So relationships can be a source of insecurity, right? Well, what else? Insecurity can arise from past struggles or sins. We can always live with the skeletons in our closet or the demons from the past, right? The things that we didn't do quite right. Look at verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth. And my rebellious ways, according to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. How often we feel as though something in our past is happening, or something is happening to us now because of what we did in the past. Well, you know, you break down on the side of the road. I'd have just pulled over to help that guy last week, you know. I saw him slide, slide off the road. I was in a hurry to... Whatever it was, those thoughts come across our mind, do they not? It's the reason that I'm struggling with this or that or the other thing is because God is getting me back. Or karma, or whatever. That's the essence of, way, of, of, of what that mentality is. It's this what goes around comes around, get what you deserve kind of mentality. But such a view of things will always result in insecurity. Will always. Because none of us are perfect, right? We're always going to live with insecurity if that's the way we think. So insecurity can arise from a belief that God is out to get us for our past sins, our struggles. And we're going to see, of course, that that's not, that's not the case. Insecurity can result from, feeling, from a feeling of not knowing what to do. Right? I'm just giving you a picture of all these different categories and places in our lives where insecurity can be very real. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths, he says in verse 4. Verse 9 says that he guides the humble. If you go on down to verse 12, a little bit past the, the reading today, it says that those who fear the Lord will be instructed in the ways they should choose. The psalmist is running to God for direction to know which way he should go. So you come to a crossroads in life, right? Which we all do. Come to a crossroads. Which fork do I take, Lord? 
oftentimes, inevitably, we'll be in a place where we look at all the options and none of them look good, right? None of, none of it is what I would want, Lord. Seems like any path I take will bring out another un- unique problem or situation or outcome that is undesirable. And insecurity can arise from feeling that there's no way out. There's no right choice. So insecurity can, rise from a, can arise from a host of places, can it not? But don't you see that maybe the psalmist here is wrestling, wrestling with this as well. He's saying, Lord, there's an enemy. Protect me. Do not let me be ashamed. Someone out to get me, so to speak. There's past struggles and, and sins in his life. Lord, do not remember my foolishness as a youth. Forgive me for that. Don't hold that against me, Lord. And maybe or maybe he's at a crossroads and he says, Lord, guide me. Show me the right way to go. I don't know which way to go. But those who trust in the Lord know that God always has a good purpose in these things. Those who trust in the Lord know that God reigns. That all of these problems are in the hands of the Lord and that He has a plan for them. The Bible teaches that the king's heart is like rivers of water in the hand of the Lord, it says. He directs it the way He will. Usually God's plan involves change, and that's what's hard. Getting us to a new place of spiritual growth, right? And I think we all know this as Christians. We realize that God oftentimes shakes us up to move us to a new place. Beth Moore, I don't know if any of you all are familiar with her. I, I really appreciate her. My wife loves her and uh, listen to a lot of her talks. And she's a, you know, she travels around and does these conferences and stuff and has written a lot of books. But I highly encourage anything pretty much that that Beth Moore has written. But she says this in a a book actually called, um, I think it's called So Long Insecurity is the name of the book or something like that. She writes this, I hate to display such a firm grasp of the obvious, but how will we ever change if everything around us stays the same? Or what will ever cause us to move on to the next place that God has for us if something doesn't change or happen to change the way we feel about where we are. God is thoroughly committed to finishing the masterpiece that He started in us. And that process means one major thing, change. Security comes not from having a stable situation. We all need to hear this, okay? Listen to that again. Security does not come from having a stable situation. Because situations can always change, can't they? In an instant, someone can be gone, you can lose your job, someone can die, something can happen. Security comes from having an anchor to hold you fast in the storm. Doesn't matter what's going on on the sea, right? If I've got my anchor, I'll be all right. That's where security comes from. Not from the seas, which can change in a moment, or from the boat, which can spring a leak, but having something strong to hold on to, maybe. The psalmist cries out to God here who is his rock and his anchor in times of security. He reminds himself, the Lord will lead me. He'll show me the way. I may not see it right now, but he'll show me the way. God is good, he says, and affirms over and over. We see this all over in the Psalter. But trusting God also means looking to God for guidance. This is the third point. Those who trust God don't run first to the experts with their problems. They run to Jesus. 
Notice again from our passage who it says that God helps. Verse 8, He instructs sinners in His way. Well, if you're going to understand the ways of God, you have to be willing to admit that you've messed up. You have to be willing to admit that you need help, that you don't have it all together. To use the Christian fancy lingo or whatever, that you're sinful. We don't like that word, but that's what that means, that we've all erred, we've all fallen short. But don't we tend to think the opposite? Think about this for, for a moment. How many of us think, you know, I've got to get my life in order. Then I start going to church, right? I've got to clean my act up a little bit. You know, maybe get my kids in line. Maybe I'll stop that nasty habit that I got or whatever, you know. And then God will, God will accept me. We tend to think the opposite. I need to clean up my act. But you know why this won't work? Second you do that, I don't need God no more, right? That's the second, that's, that's the way we are as human beings. Second you get your life in order, that's the moment that you begin to think, I got, I'm good, you know, I don't, I don't need God. Family's good, money's good, job's good, health's good. I don't need the Lord anymore. That's the way it works for us. Those who see their need for God come to the Lord and He instructs them and He teaches them. Verse 9, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. And this goes with the previous verse. The humble are those who recognize that they're needy, that they're in a place of need. They see that maybe their situation is not as firm as they would, they would think. That, oh, if that were to change in just a moment, then maybe I wouldn't be so hot, you know. Those who get grace, those who are guided, those who are directed by God, this psalm shows us, are those who are really willing to reach out and grab hold of the hand that God is extending to them instead of thrashing about in the water like they got it under control or trying to get, get control. If you go on down past the first verse of, of, of uh, our text today, or excuse me, past the final verse, down to verse 15 if you have your Bible there, you'll see the same. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only He will release my feet from the snare. The psalmist is looking to God alone for His help. Yes, doctors may help you when you're sick. We don't need to go down again. There's that logic again. If you take one of God's attributes to the extreme, right? You end up in, there's a lot of cults that believe you don't go to doctors and you don't do that. The Lord will heal you. Well, that's taking one of the teachings of, about God and His character to an extreme. And you've got to to balance them with the others. God is not anti-doctors. But doctors may help you when you're sick. Friends may come to your aid. They may bring you meals and do that sort of thing. You may get a promotion at work and things may go, go well there and so on. But the psalmist recognizes who's behind it. God. God is behind it. He has released me from the snare. He is orchestrating all of these things. Well, this is consistent, is it not, with those who Jesus despised during His earthly ministry. Y'all know these folks. These are the famous folks that we hear about a lot if you go and read the, read the Gospels. The Pharisees. What was it that He loathed about the Pharisees? Their self-confidence, right? Their, their lack of humility. And because the Pharisees were not humble, they were of no use to the people. They were religious leaders, and the people looked to them for guidance. But this is what Jesus says about them in Matthew 23. If you read, go to Matthew 23 sometime and read the whole thing, and it's, wow, 
and loathe is the right word. Maybe I feel like that's a little bit of extreme. Jesus loathed people. Yes, he, he loathed the Pharisees. Go, go read it. Woe to you, blind guides, you say. <clears throat> if anyone swears by the temple, this is, um, looks like verse starting in verse 16. If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, he says, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Jesus called these people blind guides. They did not know. They were actually leading people to destruction. And that's why Jesus was so bothered by these folks. They did not know the ways of God. And therefore they received no direction from God. Because they refused it. If you continue on down to Matthew 23, to verses 37 and 38, Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Before you can receive God's guidance, you have to believe that you need it. You're going to wander around in the dark until you do, until you see that you need it. That is why the humble are helped and why God helps the humble and opposes the proud. So trusting God means being willing to receive God's direction and guidance. And that leads us to our last point. Trusting God means looking to Him for grace. And this is the heart and the soul of trusting God here. All that we have, all that we've said so far, is built upon the foundation of grace, right? Sorry, this thing. That God would give us an understanding of His character, that God would protect us, that God would guide us in all, in, in all of our life, is grace. That's all a gift of grace. It's a gift. And the psalmist realizes this. Look at verse 11. Forgive my iniquity, though it is great. This is someone writing something in the Bible, right? be pretty tempting if you're somehow one of your letters made it into the Bible to feel pretty good about it. He says, my iniquity is great. All of our sins have gone over our heads and we're drowning in our poor decisions and our problems. We may not see all of that, but it's true. We may know we've made a few wrong decisions, but I think if the Lord opened up the curtain and we saw everything every day that we did wrong, we'd be absolutely overwhelmed. As the psalmist goes through his petitions, he asks God to remember your great mercy and love. The psalmist is not trying to justify himself. Do you notice that? He's like, oh, well, Lord, I was just trying to, if you just knew what I was trying to do, God, I, or maybe, you know, if you see, they were doing this to me. And they, and, nope. He just says, God, forgive me. I was wrong. He just acknowledges his error, and ask for God's mercy. But here's the beauty of all that we've just said. Everything we've just heard, here's the beauty of it. 
that God can be trusted. It's not just about just mustering up the, the energy to somehow trust this tyrant in the sky. I mean, just battle to trust someone that's untrustworthy. No, God can be trusted. Nowhere here do we sense that the psalmist doubts God's character. He doubts maybe whether he's worthy, whether God would actually maybe move in his favor, but God's character is never in question. God is trustworthy. And so maybe we get a sense of why this psalm is, is here in the first place. He's reminding himself of the promises of God, reminding himself of God's desire, his goodness, his mercy, his love, these things that he's told us about. If the psalm goes on, as it goes on, it's as if he gains confidence in the Lord's goodness. Look at verse 12. He will instruct those who fear the Lord in the ways they should choose. He will instruct them. As the psalmist recites it to himself, preaches to himself, if you will, he gains reassurance that God will help him. Sometimes you have to preach to yourself. Let me tell you, if I'm the only one preaching to you every week, you're not going to make it. You ain't going to make it. Not because, yes, I am inadequate and I could be woefully inadequate, could do a lot better and I'm growing and I appreciate y'all's patience with me and all of that. But that's the way it is. We all have to preach to ourselves. You're not going to get through it based on someone else's efforts to get you through it. At least apart from the Lord Jesus. But you have to remind yourself day in and day out of who God is, what He's done for you, His promises to you, or you will not get to the finish line. Psalm 119 verse 11 says this, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So why do we need to remember these things? Because we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the hymn says. Right? We all know that. We do that. Lord, help me not sin against you. How do we do that? We do it by remembering His promises and who He is and His Word. What does Paul ask for in 2 Timothy? Right as he's facing death and execution, he's in jail. He writes a letter to Timothy. What's he asked for? This is Paul's last letter. He's going to die. He knows it. Or at least feels that that's highly likely. What's he write to Timothy right near the end of 2 Timothy? He says this, Timothy, when you come, please bring to me the scrolls and especially the parchments. What's he asking for there? Paul's facing death. What would you do? You're in jail. You're about to be executed. Where is your hope? For Paul, it was the parchments, the scriptures, the promises of God, being reminded of who God was for him. In his last hour, it was God's character that sustained him. This whole psalm, I think, is a testimony to the fact that we all have to remind ourselves on a regular basis of God's character, of who God is for us. You're going to face trials in this life that will test your faith. There's no doubt about it. They will push you even to the brink. There's going to, there's going to be times in your life, maybe most of you have already faced these times, where you feel like you're going to go crazy. I can't take it anymore. What will you be standing on? It's not a question of if for most of us. It's a question of when that day is going to come. What will you be standing on? Our passage today not only tells us that we should put our trust in the Lord, it tells us that the Lord can be trusted. And it tells us what that looks like. Those who trust God find security in the Lord. Those who trust God look to Him for guidance. Those who trust God look to God for grace and mercy. 
But most of all, those who trust God know His character and they remind themselves of it frequently. In You, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in You. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in You will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me Your ways, Lord. Teach me Your paths. Guide me in Your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and your love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his way. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All of the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of His covenant. Hallelujah. Amen.